Hello, this is Brian Matlaga, the Associate Director of Education for the Endourology Society. And I'd like to welcome you to this installment of the Endourology Society Sound Bites podcast series sponsored by Richard Wolf. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Brian Eisner, who is a physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard University in Boston. Dr. Eisner, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Brian. It's a great pleasure to be here, certainly, and I look forward to a very interesting discussion. Great. And so the subject that we picked out, which I think you're you know, certainly one of the world's experts on, is supine perk. And it's something that, you know, I think all of us have seen on different programs and plenaries of various meetings, whether they be the World Congress of Endurology, AUA, EAU. And I thought just as we jump into a discussion of supine perk, what was it that got you interested in adapting this technique into your practice? Thanks, Brian. So it's interesting. I think the way that I would describe that is as follows. I spent the first seven years of my practice trying to perfect my technique of prone PCNL. That was what I learned in both residency and fellowship. But I would say there was a lot of discussion throughout the world of the benefits of supine PCNL. And though in the United States, there at that time were very few, if any, people performing supine PCNL, there was a fair amount of interest in it in Latin America and Europe and Asia. You know, the early Crohn's studies showed that about 20% of all the PCNLs, at least in the Crohn's database, were done supine. So certainly prone was dominant, but supine had a chunk of the pie. And I would say, very honestly, there were a few things attending meetings and hearing what the perceived advantages were stated by people who performed supine PCNL were certainly one of the things that interested me. And I also need to be very clear that actually one individual, Guido Giusti, who was someone I had met and known over the years and someone I respected in his experience in endourology, Guido has a very great passion for it and is a strong proponent of it. And I felt that based on kind of hearing that other people were interested and from some very personal discussions with Guido, I thought that I would like to try the supine position to see if I realized the same advantages that other people talked about. And so kind of to explore that, what did you think would be the advantages of bringing the supine perk into your practice? You know, it's interesting, Brian, there are a lot of different parameters that people state are advantages. I will say that for me, there are sort of four reasons why I strongly prefer it. I don't know that these are in any particular order, but these are sort of dominant things in my mind when I think about why I might choose a supine PCNL. I would say the first is just the ease of performing ECIRS or endoscopic combined intrarenal surgery. So for me, the definition of ECIRS is a PCNL during which a ureteroscope is also placed transurethrally in a retrograde fashion so that at least part of the procedure is a retrograde ureteroscopy and part of the procedure is a PCNL. While that is certainly feasible in the prone position, my sense prior to starting supine and my personal experience now having performed supine PCNL for somewhere around four years is that it is significantly easier in the supine position. And so some people perform ECIRS for every procedure. I do not but I perform it probably for about 20 to 30% of the procedures that I do. But the most important thing is that I always have it as an option and it's not really a big deal to use that option. So basically I position the patients in a standard position 
And I start with a sort of standard PCNL with just a retrograde ureteral catheter and a combination of ultrasound and fluoroscopic guided puncture. But if I feel that it would at all be advantageous to introduce a flexible ureteroscope transurethrally, it's very seamless because the patient's already in a position that will very easily accommodate that. So I would say that was sort of reason number one. Reason number two, I think, has to do with anesthesia concerns. And this is kind of highly debated, but I'll say certainly in my practice, there is a not insignificant number of overweight or obese patients. That makes sense because we know that obesity is a risk factor for stone disease. And certainly the supine ventilation, I think, is advantageous from the perspective of the anesthesiologists compared to prone ventilation. That's certainly been the story that my anesthesiology colleagues have told me. Of course, it's possible to ventilate someone well in the prone position, but supine does seem to facilitate anesthesia. I would say the third reason is interesting. I don't want to simply cite a single paper, but a very interesting study came out in 2016 by a group that included Mario Sofer from Israel and his group, as well as Guido Giusti and Silvia Proietti from Milan, which actually showed that from the lower pole, it is significantly easier to enter the upper pole with a rigid instrument in the supine position when compared to the prone position. So in this study, which is published in Journal of Urology in February 2016, they demonstrated that from a lower pole access, they could reach the upper pole with the rigid nephroscope 80% of the time in supine and only 20% of the time in prone. And so for me, although I'm happy to puncture any calyx, I think it adds a level of confidence that one may be able to tackle a stone both in the lower pole, renal pelvis, and upper pole from a lower pole puncture in the supine position. And then the fourth reason for me, and again, there's many that people debate, but the other thing is there is also some preliminary evidence that perhaps hemodynamic parameters are less affected in the supine position than the prone position. I often talk about a paper where the senior author, his name is Ali Hussein Ali, which was published in the Journal of Endourology in September of 2014, which noted that the supine position was associated with less tachycardia, less hypotension, and less changes in ventilatory pressures in their study comparing supine PCNL to prone PCNL. And when we consider that many, not all, but many of the patients with large stones may also have associated infection, you know, stability of hemodynamic parameters was quite important to me. And so I appreciated that they found more stability of hemodynamic parameters in the supine position. I would say that that data, because it's one single paper, was corroborated by a meta-analysis that was done, written by last author Tamori, T-E-I-M-O-O-R-I, and published in Urology Journal in 2016, which noted that the post-operative fever percentages after supine PCNL were close to 7% in their meta-analysis, and in prone were close to 11%, again, suggesting that perhaps hemodynamic parameters and infection may be improved in the supine position. So those are my four main reasons. Other people have talked about a little bit of a shorter operative time because there's no need to flip the patient or operating room time. You know, I think flipping the patient or proning the patient, I should say, does not tend to take a long time. So that's not really of particular interest to me when I think about supine. So those were sort of my four main reasons. Thank you for that incredibly comprehensive discussion. So from the time you said, oh, I want to start doing supine PCNL, you'd said that Dr. Giusti was a mentor in your sort of process of learning that. But what was that process? Did you spend time with him in direct observation? Did you watch videos? Or how did you get set up to do the first one? 
That's a great question, Brian. And I would say that I hope that people listening to this podcast can benefit from what I would say was my experience and perhaps my suggestion if one wants to learn. You know, there are many different techniques for supine puncture. The technique that Guido suggested to me, because I did not spend time with him, but the technique that Guido suggested to me at the time was to start the puncture with the needle parallel to the floor, okay? And that was a very different puncture technique than what I was used to in prone, where one is constantly kind of trying to understand the optimal angle of entry from the needle into the calyx. And so I had, of course, seen Dr. Giusti speak many times. He did send me a uh, set of his slides that he used to teach the supine PCNL. It was very kind of him to do that. And when I sort of read what he did and studied his slides, what it meant to me was that if one is going to start by puncturing with the needle always at the same angle in parallel to the floor, what it meant to me was that while prone PCNL access is predicated upon figuring out the right angle in terms of puncturing the kidney, supine really isn't because the angle is fairly constant, at least the way I do it, which is parallel to the floor. So the trick to supine PCNL is not deciding the angle, but rather deciding the point on the skin, which will allow you to puncture parallel to the floor and enter this sort of desired calyx. So I think the most tricky thing about starting supine PCNL is that some of the principles of puncture are a little bit different. If someone asks me, and many people have asked me now, because I think some people are aware that I have been doing this for some time in the States, although for much less time than many people in Europe, how would I learn? What I would say is that I think someone experienced in prone PCNL doesn't need to observe 100 before starting supine, but I do think it is valuable to maybe observe someone experienced, whether it's in person or by video, maybe perform somewhere on the order of two to four. You know, I will say that I think my seven years of what would be considered a relatively high volume of prone PCNLs, I think gave me enough experience that I had sort of a little bit of a higher level of confidence than let's say if I had just started learning right after my residency or fellowship. So I had the confidence of seven years behind me of prone PCNL, but I really had to retrain my brain to think about the puncture, partly because I had worked so hard to optimize the prone puncture. So I do think observing someone or watching someone, whether it's again a video or in person, I do think that lends a lot of help to the experience of starting something that seems new. And to that point, what is the learning curve like? Kind of what was your experience and are there certain lessons you took away that you think would be valuable to pass on to others? Yeah. So again, I think this is a really interesting question. I do think the learning curve is probably different for someone who, again, has a lot of experience and prone versus someone who's, let's say, coming fresh out of residency. Because what I did know was that I was equipped to deal with the complications of PCNL in general, right? The complications, no matter what their numbers are, it's the same types of complications in either position. So perhaps I had the confidence behind me of having a fairly busy endourology practice in my first seven years and doing a fair number of prone PCNL, I would say that probably the first 10 cases for me, I really, I don't know if struggles the word, but the images always looked a bit confusing to me. And I did follow an adage of some of my mentors, both Marshall Stoller and Steven Dreller, who taught me that if you are going to try something new or whether you have less experience, I think the onus is on the surgeon to 
you know, make sure that the cases are very, very appropriate. So I would say in my first year, the 30% of my PCNLs that were sort of the most straightforward, you know, maybe renal pelvis stones, patients that were not particularly overweight or obese, you know, the perinephric anatomy was favorable. That was maybe my first year of PCNL, you know, and maybe I did, I don't know, 30% that way. But I'll tell you that by, I would say, maybe after a year or maybe a little bit more of supine PCNL, it really became my position of choice. And at this point in my practice, I rarely perform a prone PCNL. I do think if someone is skilled in supine PCNL, I do feel there is still a role for prone PCNL. But I would say that in my current practice, probably around 95% of the perks are supine. It's pretty unusual for me to do a prone PCNL, except in special circumstances in these days. It seems like your default at this point is supine PCNL, but what is the selection process where you may take a patient and perform a prone PCNL instead? So as I went on this voyage, Brian, I looked at my puncture numbers and my puncture locations in my prone series. And interestingly, and I know certain people prefer, you know, certain calyces where other people don't have a strong preference. You know, I was sort of trained to kind of look at the stone and sort of pick what I thought was the most favorable calyx. And so when I looked at my prone experience, again, over seven years, really my puncture sort of sorted out as about a third in the upper pole, a third in the middle calyx, and a third in the lower pole. So it was really very balanced. I think one of the things that's very interesting about supine PCNL is there are people who in these debates, and of course I've given many of these debates or been asked to give many of these debates, who try to state the point that, you know, really the lower pole is the only appropriate calyx for supine or that the upper pole or a supracostal puncture can't be achieved. And I would disagree with that a little bit. And I think the proof is actually that when I review my supine cases, quite frankly, my punctures have the same exact distribution as when I did prone. So when I look at my supine cases, again, it's about a third in the upper pole, a third in the middle calyx puncture, and a third in the lower pole. What I would say is that for me, the one clear indication for prone PCNL is that even though I do puncture the upper pole, again, in a third of my cases in supine, there's no question that relative to sort of the skin and the patient's body, the supine puncture does come from a more lateral position. Or maybe to say it a slightly different way, you know, if someone's using the eye of the needle technique in the prone position or bullseye, you certainly can get much closer to the spine in a prone upper pole puncture than one could in a supine upper pole puncture. And that makes sense because you have access to the patient's entire back in the prone position, whereas in supine position, you have much more access lateral than you do medial and close to the spine. And so what I do when I perform my PCNLs or when I see a patient and I'm evaluating them is... I review the CT scan and I consider my puncture tract. And I say, you know, I think if I'm interested in an upper pole puncture or a middle calyx puncture, I review and make sure that the perirenal anatomy is favorable for supine in a way that a lateral puncture is often necessary in supine PCNL will not cause an injury to the viscera or to the intra-abdominal organs. If there's a large retrorenal spleen or liver or colon, and the only safe window is a prone medial bullseye technique upper pole puncture, then I will perform that in the prone position gladly. And interestingly, Fabio Vincentini and a large group of people, I was a very small part of this study, actually very recently published a paper which was a multi-center study of supine versus prone PCNL for horseshoe kidneys. You know, it used to be dogmatic that even for people who preferred supine PCNL, that because you couldn't get as medial 
on the back for a horseshoe kidney puncture that those cases all had to be done prone. But even when I contributed some cases to that study with Fabio, I found that I had performed several horseshoe kidney prone upper pull punctures, but several in the supine position as well over the last several years. And so that was a very long-winded answer. But at the end of the day, I would say that only in patients with very retrorenal position of their organs where a medial prone upper pull bullseye puncture is the best puncture, those are really the only cases in my practice that I perform in the prone position. And like I said, these days, it's maybe one to three a year. And I just wanted to close with a question of taking your experience at present with supine PCNL. Have you brought in other adjunctive techniques or technologies? You mentioned that you do ESERS, the combined intravenal surgery at times. What about mini perk or ultrasound guided access? Have you brought any of those approaches into your supine approach? I absolutely have, Brian. And what I would say is that, and you know, I think part of this is residency training in the states, you know, versus the rest of the world. You know, what I realized when I graduated residency and fellowship, and I felt like I was privileged to be well trained and work with wonderful mentors. I realized in the American residency system in general, we had no real exposure to supine PCNL when I was a resident. And I graduated in 2008. And we had very, very little exposure to ultrasound relative to, I think, for example, many of the European countries where, you know, abdominal ultrasound, the residents get a lot of experience with or a fair amount of experience with. I think that ultrasound is really, really important for me, a part of evaluating a patient during supine PCNL. And I think it would be for prone too, but I will admit that I sort of made a plan in my head to first kind of gain competence and perhaps, you know, excellence in supine PCNL. And then I felt the next step for me was trying to incorporate ultrasound into my practice. And so I started very basically, I got some advice from Tom Chi and also Matt Sorensen, two good friends of mine who do a fair amount of ultrasound guided PCNL in their practices and have expertise in it. And the first thing I decided and I committed to was that no matter how I did the puncture, I was going to perform a retroperitoneal ultrasound at the beginning of each case. So I had asked the OR to now have the ultrasound in the room for every single PCNL. Even in someone who had a previous nephrostomy tube that I was already going to use, although that's not a very common thing in our practice, I still ultrasounded the kidneys. And I actually spent one or two cases I had our ultrasound technicians come down to discuss with me kind of what their techniques were. And by no means am I saying I'm an expert in renal ultrasound, although I think that as urologists, we're very, very used to interpreting renal ultrasounds. And so the next step was to perform them. So I got some advice from some ultrasound techs, as well as, like I said, Matt Sorensen and Tom Chi, and really pushed myself to at least become excellent at sonography of the kidney. Once I did that, I then sort of tried to proceed to the next step where I'm working on right now, which is that I actually tried to think about how the ultrasound probe could help me decide where on the skin to start my supine puncture. So remember I discussed before that I like to puncture parallel to the floor and I like to choose the right spot on the skin to start that puncture so that I don't have to have you know many puncture tries before I enter the kidney. So the next step was using the ultrasound to help me pick the point on the skin where I start my supine puncture. And the third phase where I am right now is that I have acquired the needle guide. I know that some people do it freehand, but I felt like, you know, kind of again, in the beginning of my experience, I wanted to use the needle guide for ultrasound puncture. And now 
now my intent, and I've done some of these, is to start every procedure by at least attempting using the needle guide and ultrasound guided puncture, but of course have the ability to do a fluoroscopy and to easily convert to fluoroscopy if I need to. I got some advice from Tom Chi. He said, when you first start, spend five minutes at the beginning of each case attempting to enter the kidney via ultrasound guided puncture. And if you don't have it in five minutes, quickly convert to fluoro and do the case you know, the way you normally would. And I would say that's been sage advice and it's really kind of helped me progress. Just to comment real quick on mini PCNL, I will admit I don't do a ton of mini. I've certainly tried it and worked on it. And for me, I think the sort of optimal size for mini is sort of the 16, 17 French size. But I will say that my typical PCNL is a 24 French standard PCNL. I rarely go to 30 and it's infrequent that I do mini except in some special cases. Well, Brian, I just want to thank you for being a part of this series. This has really been an invaluable overview of supine PCNL, and I think really nicely augments the library that this series is putting together. So I just want to thank you for being a part of it. My pleasure, and thank you for selecting me to speak for a few minutes. Of course, and I encourage the listeners that as the next installment comes out, we hope it'll be another area of endourology and robotic surgery, focal therapy that you find of great interest and value in this series. And again, we'd like to thank Richard Wolf for supporting this society initiative. So thank you very much. 